When I battle MCs, I don't do it quietly. Lyrics so loud, I woke James Lindsay. When I drop science, I never whisper. Call it IDW, because I ain't no grifter. Come at me, son, and you'll get destroyed. Now welcome, friends, as we embrace the void. Virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional, I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 181 of Embrace the Void, where awkward white person rapping remains uncancelled. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking culture war metaphysics. But first, shout out to Matt underscore Allen 78 on Twitter for the hilariously cringe intro rap this week. I do genuinely love it when Voidlings submit convocations. So if you want to hear me say something absurd at the start of the show, hit me up. All right. Let's take that cringe to scale. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Oliver Traldi, a philosophy PhD student at Notre Dame who frequently publishes at Arc Digi and Heterodox Academy. Oliver, would you like to say hi to the void? Yeah, hi. Hi to the void. I read somewhere that if you say hi to the void, the void says hi back, which uh, doesn't seem like a great prospect, but hopefully I'll be okay on here. Oh, no, we're a very gregarious void around here. We're oh, friendly, good. pretty Not like the abyss. You know? That's good. Maybe I was thinking No, even, even if you shout into us, we still are pretty much fairly chill, actually. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate you coming on the show. It's nice to finally get to chat. I feel like you've been probably one of our most frequently suggested guests, um, mostly by people who have accused you of being thoughtful and balanced, which I thought was a pretty vicious slur. Yeah. I felt like you might want to repudiate here on air. Do you want to yeah. maybe, before we get into our culture warring, uh, start by telling folks a little bit how you self-identify sort of philosophically and on the very online political compass of life? Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's start with politically. The short answer is that I don't uh, <laughs> self-identify politically. Everybody else has that kind of taken care of for me. So I've been accused of being uh, everything from a reactionary to a libertarian, to a classical liberal, to a kind of milquetoast centrist, uh, to an anti-woke leftist and a red-brown uh, <laughs> alliance member. <laughs> so I don't know exactly what I am. When I take uh, the political compass test, I end up sort of midway in the bottom left. Mm -hmm. But in terms of actual politics, I don't think about it very much. I'm not a wonk. Uh, I don't have, I don't have, you know, I don't know anything about policy really. 
And when I vote for people, I sort of vote based on who seems trustworthy to me. So for example, the last cycle around, uh, Mayor Pete, who, who's from here, from my town, the mayor of my town of South Bend, uh, and Bernie Sanders were the people who seemed trustworthy to me. So not really easy to get like a coherent ideology out of those two choices, sort of contradictory. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm very much going on instinct the way kind of like an average voter would um, in, terms of, in terms of politics. Now in the culture war, which I think of as being only a little bit linked to politics, um, I think of it as being less linked to politics than maybe some other people in the sphere do. In the culture war, I think it's fair to describe me as a kind of cultural conservative. I think that I... Uh, you know, I'm in favor of keeping the academy as apolitical as we can. I like classical music. I like the sort of books that would be taught in a great books course and, and things like that. Uh, and uh, I get uneasy when I see, I've been seeing so many of these on Twitter um, the past few days for some reason. I get uneasy when I see like a poster that says, you need to interrogate your whiteness or something like that. Something, you know, that strikes me as being kind of weird somehow. So that's my mm-hmm. position in the culture war. I'm on, I was, uh, there was a list of kind of like IDW hangers on, intellectual dark web hangers on that was once made. And I was given mm-hmm. the um, the epithet erudite. I was listed as the erudite member. Uh-huh. So you, I didn't choose... you're like IDW adjacent perhaps? I yeah, guess? I'm IDW light or I'm kind of like a an- penumbra. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There's some sort of, yeah, there's some sort of IDW classification that I fit in, but I write in the IDW organs, right? I first wrote for Quillette. I was um, an assistant editor at Ario with Helen Pluckrose until we had a kind of falling out. And uh, now I write for ARC, which is sort of a little bit less IDW than those places, but still, still sort of in the same sphere. And I'm associated now with Heterodox Academy, which was sort of, sort of a more moderate, you know, within the academy you know, you probably, you know, on the mm-hmm. political left, I'm sure there's there's all these debates about incrementalism, about within the system versus outside of the system. You can right. think of like Heterodex Academy as being like the within the system thing and the intellectual dark web as being kind of the outside of the system thing. Yeah, yeah I think that's right, though. I think height in that height set up the Heterodox Academy and height is I think, generally considered to be. I don't know if he's considered to be actually a member of the IDW as opposed to just someone who is heavily referenced by members. I would certainly put him as like the foremost moral psychologist adjacent individual within the IDW. It seems like he's highly popular. Yeah, I would say absolutely so. And his books are, you know, frequently referenced uh, the righteous mind and um, the coddling of the American mind and things like that. And just kind of his general, which actually in some important ways I disagree with, his general mm-hmm. approach of it, explaining politics by reference to cognitive biases, to irrationality, um, and things like that. Probably we'll get into that soon because my this is one place where I'm kind of out of step with maybe not everybody mm-hmm. in this sphere, but with maybe Height and Pinker at least and some other people like that. Interesting. I tend to be more of like an optimist about political mm-hmm. psychology. I tend to think people are often kind of doing their best and that political psychology is more rational than we often give it credit for. Mm-hmm. Even some some dynamics that I think kind of from the outside look obviously wrong and bad, like polarization, conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. things like that, kind of from the inside, 
you asked me to identify myself uh, philosophically. So in epistemology, I'm I'm a very strong internalist, right? I'm very much what what justification is about and what rationality is about is about kind of what's going on inside your head. Mm-hmm. That's how we determine if you're kind of if your beliefs are rational, if you're believing the right thing um, on the basis of your situation. And I think that a lot of a lot of the beliefs that we think of as being really pretty crazy may be able to be made sense of from the inside um, mm-hmm. without reference to, uh, you know, here's a clearly irrational uh, mode of thought that humans engage in and things like that. You know, like tribal, yeah. you know, for a long time, we, it was tribalism, this tribalism, that, right? That's not quite my mode. Um, my mode mm-hmm. is to kind of try to understand the way people are thinking and see if it really makes sense. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. I've been I've been in a class this semester on post-truth education, and we've mm-hmm. been going through these different kind of lenses for looking at um, the problem of post-truth. And there's interesting pushback in the you know in, you know across various domains uh, against the overemphasis on motivated reasoning as being the driving problem, and like seeing human beings as highly irrational in this kind of way. So I do think there is some some value to that. Now I'm I still end up somewhat pessimistic about the problem but i think it's mm-hmm. valuable to, rec- to not, not, like not locate all of our pessimism in the area of humans being bad reasoners um now before we dive into all that stuff i just wanted to clarify mm-hmm. something there so you mentioned so you said you are um you, you end up when you take the political compass sort of in the bottom left a little bit but you identify as um conservative generally speaking now in the way you describe yourself as a conservative it was very much the sort of I like to conserve classic texts and conserve. Yeah. Yeah. So I think of, of I think of myself as, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm just curious. Does that carry over? Or or would you say, you know, if I was to ask you about social issues, for example, would you say that you are socially conservative or would you say that you're generally progressive on issues like, um, you know, gay rights and, and trans rights and issues? I'm in favor Mm -hmm. of gay marriage. I was, you know, I was before, before Barack Obama was, you know, I've never been against gay marriage my whole life. Um, uh, I'm in favor of drug legalization. Um, I'm in favor of, uh, well, I don't know. Like I said, I don't think about these things too hard, but I'm probably in favor of a UBI. Um, I'm in favor of reparations. Uh, although I think it should Mm -hmm. replace affirmative action. So maybe that's not, I don't know if I get credit for that one. Um, we'll we'll give you half credit. Yeah. yeah. So I'll take half credit on that one. Um, I'm in favor of like, um, well, I don't know exactly what the, like the, the bathroom, you know, the kind of bathroom laws that the Republicans wanted to pass. I'm against those laws. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, I think basically in terms of, uh, po- social issues that you could vote on, um, mm. I still come out pretty progressive. Um, I, Aesthetically well, I, I, I will say though that I am, I'm interested kind of sociologically and now have, now that I'm at Notre Dame and kind of have made various friends on Twitter, there is, so a lot of, a lot of America, um, is, well, I'm going to, I'm kind of going to channel some other people here. A lot of America and actually a lot of Britain and some other countries as well is what you might call, um, uh, fiscally liberal, but socially conservative. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, there's not, uh, necessarily, 
like a great, like a natural political party for these people to fall into. There's not necessarily a natural place for them. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the people who I know like this are, are Catholics who I've befriended um, either at Notre Dame or through Notre Dame Connections. I've never really known many Catholics before in my life. So it's interesting kind of coming into contact with this intellectual tradition. Um, uh, I'm, I'm ethnically, I'm Jewish on my mother's side. Um, and I kind of think of myself as being mostly culturally Jewish. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, the, 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 the sort of mainstream, you know, views are, I think very, you might disagree with this, but to my mind are very heavily progressive on social issues and maybe kind of a bit centrist on economic issues, right? So you you have some woke liberals and you have some woke libertarians um, and maybe there are more libertarians than socialists, but you're definitely not going to have these sort of like, you know, socialists who are against gay marriage um, in, in a mainstream organ. Um, you don't really get any of them in the DSA or anything like that either. So it's been interesting to me to come, come into contact with this group that sort of upends. One thing I like is anything that sort of upends my classifications um, of people and sort of seem, you know, has a little bit of novelty in the way that different views can go together. Because I do think that in politics, you know, some views sort of entail each other, right? Some views kind of form like a cohesive logical whole, but not as much as we like to think, right? So mm-hmm. I, I reviewed Ezra Klein's book on polarization. Ezra Klein's view of polarization is like, well, there's one way of thinking about the world. Let's call it the good way, you know, just to give it a name. And then there's another way of thinking the, about the world. Let's call it the bad way. And um, mm-hmm. most people think in either of those ways. So if there's nothing complicated going on um, and if there's you know enough information given, people will sort themselves into the good group and the bad group. Let's call them Democrats and Republicans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't think, I don't think that systems of political thought uh, cohere in that sort of way. Um, that's not, that's really not my view. Um, I my think sense that, is I read him as making a, con- a contingent claim there. He's saying uh-huh. in the current situation in America, given our system that doesn't allow for more than a two party system that uh-huh. you have. And, and this is this shows up actually in some of the research that you might actually like because it it says, look, human beings are rational, for example, when they appeal to authority. Right. We mm-hmm. overemphasize the way in which that is irrational. It's actually quite smart for you to rely on your parents for right. knowledge. Ninety nine percent of the time or something like a lot of the time. So um, but that being said, when you acknowledge that reality, you also have to acknowledge that it does still end up being kind of a matter of luck, which is a you know thing that I'm always interested in, uh, mm-hmm. whether or not you happen to luck into the right information or not right. depending on on who you're listening to in those kinds of situations and so right. you know i i think what he what, what those folks would say is for an empirical claim like is climate change man-made right mm-hmm. you may be unlucky and just be in the community that sorts you into the wrong belief on that issue right. fully rationally yeah so this gets back actually to the philosophical stuff we were talking about in the mm-hmm. philosophy of ideology which is an increasingly popular topic in epistemology um, there is this question of whether somebody with a bad ideology is rational in their beliefs, given that probably they're just, some of it is through authority and some of it is kind of through social osmosis. 
And of course, those of us with good beliefs, you and I have good beliefs, right? Obviously. Um, yeah, obviously. Uh, <laughs> we also get our beliefs from authority and by osmosis. It would be, it would be right. very, you know, it wouldn't be very self-aware uh, to deny that at least some of that has happened to us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so if you're an internalist like me, you have to say, or you get to say, to me, it's a good thing, right? You get to say something like, well, I'm only as rational as the person who's unlucky, right? We're as rational and as justified as each other. Um, the externalist does something different, right? The externalist says, well, the person who ends up being right, even though they're kind of doing, employing the same reasoning, is actually more rational. That, to me, is a very odd philosophical move. Um, hmm. So that's something that I'm working on recently. But the, that's you know, very interesting. Yeah. So well, you probably know about kind of like the classic skeptical cases, right? Um, brain sure. in a vat, you know, yeah, brain in a vat, yeah. uh, evil demon, right? So people uh-huh. actually think of bad ideology as being, you know, it's very, very much analogized to kind of like the skeptical cases, right? They say if you're mm-hmm. born into a bad ideology, in a sense, it's kind of like being born a brain in a vat, right? You're just not in contact with their political reality in some way. Um, hmm. And so I think, I think that, you know, I think we kind of all rise and fall together if we're all using the same sort of reasoning, then the person in the good ideology is only as rational as the person um, in the bad ideology. That's super funny to me that that splits that way, because I would say that I identify more as an externalist. So Mm -hmm. for folks who are not familiar, again, another way to think about this is like internalists would claim you need to know that your source of knowledge is reliable is good in some mm-hmm. kind of way right you need to have that information available to you on some level right like we're not going to parse all the different flavors but versus like the externalists will say as long as your knowledge is coming from a reliable source you don't necessarily need to be able to prove that it's reliable or something like that i do tend i think intuitively to line up with the externalists and would say mm-hmm. you know to avoid various regress problems like externalism seems fine with me generally speaking right but i do also think I wouldn't argue that the person who has the bad luck of not having the externally reliable resources, I, I don't I don't want them to say, I don't want to say that they're irrational in the way that like they're being driven by motivated reasoning in a mm-hmm. different way than other people. Right. Like, a, like, like, you know what I'm saying? I don't think yeah. that they're like willfully irrational. I just think that they're unlucky and I don't even think they're fully irrational. I think they're just, they're unlucky in a different way besides being irrational. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree that it's, um, Hmm. yeah. So I don't want to get too, I'm going to mess up if we get too much into the complexities because there's, um, okay. This is all very, you know, this is connected to Williamson and luminosity and some, some very, very complicated stuff. Um, but yeah, I think it is interesting. Um, the, you know, the way that the internalism externalism debate, um, evolved itself is kind of odd um, because as you were saying, the motivations you explained, you know, I think were maybe the motivations uh, for maybe like Alva Goldman um, and kind of early reliabilism and Goldman, I think Goldman's essays from back then make a ton of sense. Um, and kind of modern externalism uh, is kind of a more British externalism that kind of, to me, doesn't make as much sense. Um, and, but then the, when it's applied to the political realm, it also, you know, it just starts looking very different, right? And it start you can start mm-hmm. coming to these very different conclusions with it. Um, okay. So yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of, it's an interesting little bit of um, intellectual history. I do tend to think, you know, an interesting thing about me, I'm so, you know, being an IDW member, I'm very 
you know, I'm anti-continental philosophy. I think a lot of it is gibberish and stuff like this. Um, on the other hand, I think that to an extent, internalism is kind of like as close as you get in analytic philosophy to the legacy of continental rationalism, right? Like hmm. an internalist is closer to like Descartes or Leibniz than an externalist. An externalist is kind of closer to the, you know, the empiricist traditions of, of Locke and Hume. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's a, it's kind of an inter interesting intellectual formation in epistemology at the moment. Yeah, I would say so far in my experience of continental analytic philosophy, they are equally ridiculous and uh -huh. like both of them are incredibly useful in some ways and really awful in other ways, just diff slightly different ways. Um, but let's let's switch gears here a little bit before we get too deep into those weeds. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Some yeah. other weeds and Steve. Yeah, we don't want to have a seminar here, right? No, it's okay. So the reason, the initial reason we were gonna we were, uh, were going to chat was I had put up a post, um, and this is a, still a standing offer uh, of a mm -hmm. debate with an anti woke individual on the issue of the subjective objective divide, um, which I think is a fairly meta problem in philosophy mm -hmm. that is creeping more and more into the culture war. Um, now I've gathered from chatting with you beforehand, my sense is we're not necessarily going to have too much of an argument here, but I do want to explore this space some a little bit. So let me let me first ask you. Would you agree with my diagnosis that a lot of the, a lot of the discussion, whether or not, you know, take people at their word for a moment, right? People mm -hmm. at their word seem to be really, really worried about the subjective and the objective when they are talking about culture war debates. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I do. You know, it was I hadn't quite understood the framing of sub of subjective objective. Sometimes, you know, sometimes when you do too much philosophy and you hear these terms being used in a technical sense, you start mm -hmm. really you stop kind of being able to understand what, you know, the way normal people talk. So I had to kind of right. think a little bit, what would mean subjective objective in, in the culture war, but I did come up with a few things. So the first thing I thought of was maybe it's this kind of like the Ben Shapiro facts don't care about your feelings. Right. Mm -hmm, um, sure. So maybe the facts are the objective, the feelings are subjective. Um, to be honest, I don't exactly know. I'm not a hundred percent sure that I know what he means when he says that. Um, so, I'm probably going to be on, on your side about that, but there's two other ones that I think are interesting. Um, mm -hmm. One is the idea of uh, things that are kind of like robustly real versus things whose existence is a matter of social construction. Um, mm -hmm. So certainly social construction theorists are kind of more likely to be on, on the woke side. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, This takes different forms in a bunch of different debates. Um, I don't want to kind of like tie myself sure. in any problematic knots or anything. Um, but so, um, for example, um, I think of the woke position on race as being that race is a social construct. And I think mm -hmm. of the, there are two non-woke positions on race. One is that, um, race doesn't exist at all. And the other is that mm -hmm. uh, race has a biological existence. Um, so mm -hmm. the social construction position, I think, has, is subjective in the sense that it depends on people's thoughts. It depends on people's attitudes um, and things like that. And that kind of we have control over it in some, you know, a weak mm -hmm. sense of control, but a certain sense of control. The other thing that I was thinking about objectivity and subjectivity right. And I think this might be, this might actually be the most important, um, is in the debate about values and science. 
Um, and this might be able to be extended to the debate about values in the academy kind of overall. Um, so mm -hmm. there's uh, this I know kind of from the pre presentation of the other side. Um, at one point, there was this idea, and probably a lot of scientists still hold this view. I hold like a weak version of this view. Um, probably some other philosophers hold a, a weak version of this view. There is this view that science should be value free. Science should just, we should just kind of run the numbers. Um, we should just sort of mm -hmm. see how our experiments work out and see which theories best explain our evidence. Um, and we shouldn't use any political values or moral values to decide what would be true um, or to decide which theories mm -hmm. we should accept or which are most likely. Um, now, the way that the opposite position is that science is value laden. Um, and there's like a bunch of different ways of cashing out the idea that science might be value laden, that it might not be value free. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, certainly every now and then we have these controversies in the academy. Some of them are about some people think this research just shouldn't be done. It goes against our values. Um, and those are almost certainly kind of people uh, on, on the worker side and the people who say, no, we shouldn't, you know, we should just pursue the truth. We shouldn't take values into account at all. Those are kind of people more on the, the heterodox side, um, the IDW side. Um, so that's one place, mm -hmm. another place that the subjective objective divide mm -hmm. might come in. So I don't know. I don't know exactly which of those you had in mind, um, but I think they're all places that there's a connection. Yeah, well, and the interesting thing to me is I think I don't want to say there's just one point that I have in mind here. I think this is pervasive uh -huh. through these debates in weird and inconsistent. I mean, like, and this is what I think is true is that because the subjective objective divide is pervasive through philosophy, through every mm -hmm. field of philosophy, you have some version of these kinds of problems, whether it's epistemology or metaphysics, you likewise see it pervasive in, you know, whether it's debates about essential biological essentialism or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, or, or two plus two equals four, right? Like all mm -hmm. of these have this underlying theory theme of, um, you know, well, let's say from the anti-woke perspective, right? They are defending robust claims to objective truth and right. the woke are coming in and undercutting those claims by saying all of your knowledge is culturally situated and such and undermining right. Right, the ability to have consensus because of you know viewpoint epistemology so like all of this stuff right me, yeah yeah right it yeah so standpoint like, yeah. yeah standpoint epistemology i guess is another good example of a, a, a theory that's in some sense subjective yeah mm -hmm. um and but then like the, the complicated part here, and this is this is what I want to talk about some, is I can also then point to folks on the woke side who will talk about – who will criticize, for example, the argument that race is a floating signifier, which is the most mm -hmm. like subjectivist you could get, I think, in terms of saying this mm -hmm. is just something that we're producing and enacting on a daily basis, right? They will say, well, that – doesn't take into account the degree in which race is a material objective reality for a right. lot of people that like, right. negatively impacts their experiences. So I think the complication is folks on both sides actually are just wrestling with this, these subject-objective divides in a lot of ways, and they get caught up, I think, in these narratives where they think the other side is trying to cheat those games in some way when we're all just doing our best with these different problems. Yeah, I do sort of agree with you that people are generally trying their best. You know, I was, and my instinct was, was to say, yeah, 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 you know, race, 
on the work side, race is a floating signifier until Rachel Dolezal comes along, right? And then suddenly, suddenly everybody <laughs> thinks it's, you know, it's really set in stone. Um, but yeah, I do think, you know, I think uh, in large part, um, people are trying their best. Um, I do think it's hard. One thing that I don't, I'll say one thing that I don't like um, from the woke side, you know, uh, sometimes when you, I've found, and maybe this happens on my side too, but I've found sometimes, you know, when I try to engage, oh, there's this complication, right? You were subjective in this way, you're objective in this way, right? Isn't, isn't there a kind of tension there? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's a little bit of a slogan on the woke side to just kind of say, oh, well, that's because it's so complex. It's just very nuanced, right? It's just very fraught or very complicated, right? And okay. I'm kind of like, I want to say, that's not really like an answer, right? Like that doesn't, you know, that doesn't really solve the problem that I brought up, right? Um, so I'm, I'm, I don't know I'm if I don't know if that's something that you've noticed, but yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sympathetic because I'm the person usually who's being like, actually, this is really complicated. And yeah, like, yeah. And like, well, it is. Re- it's not false that it's really complicated, but the point is that, Mm-hmm. It being really complicated, that should make us step, you know, that should make us step back a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in in part, I think of philosophy as just kind of like a series of steps taken back, right? Like right. you notice something and you think, oh, maybe I can't be as sure as this as I thought. And then you say, oh, well, maybe I can't be as sure of anything as I thought. And then you step back for another thing. And eventually mm-hmm. you kind of build, you know, a way to step forward and kind of answer a bunch of the questions at the same time. Um and that's yeah. actually, I mean, that's a place where I think, as I was talking about before the show with you, like, I think my, more and more, and maybe this is just a philosopher's perspective, but reading the critical theory stuff, it reads to me like philosophy with an emphasis on power, right? It's just constantly mm-hmm. the stepping back and going, oh, wait, there's this next layer of power that is still, uh, you know, obscuring my knowledge uh-huh. to some extent, right? With, But I, I do think a lot of folks in that world still want to say at the end of the day, the goal of that stepping back and stepping back and the incorporating of the subjective is still to get us towards something like objective with all the proper caveats mm-hmm. for, you know, whatever, right? Objective knowledge. Because for example, you know, woke people are extremely objective when you ask them about morality. Like they won't, they're, mm-hmm. they're an objective in the sense of like, they will, they will probably maybe cater towards some sort of cultural relativism in certain contexts. But if mm-hmm. you ask them, you know, is it objectively wrong to, to misname someone or misgender them? They will say, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very objectively immoral to do that. But there's right? a bit of a tension there, right? Between the relativism right. and the, there's a bit of a tension there. Um, yeah. And it's one that I wanted to ask you, I try to help them with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's good. And this is, you know, I try to do the same thing with the IDW, right? Like, there's all, you know, there's philosophical mistakes abound, you know, in mm-hmm. everybody, you know, that's why we're so annoying to everybody. That's why they killed Socrates, right? Because we're just constantly pointing out these mistakes. On the IDW side for a while, it was very common to say that the culture war had something to do. Maybe this is something you were thinking of with the subjective objective as well. But the culture mm-hmm. war had something to do with the the correspondence theory of truth. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is doesn't seem it doesn't really seem plausible to me that theories of truth are really you know it's it's just not really it's not really what people are talking about no i think what they um, meant it does was have like, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah like what they did I, I was, think this they, is our shorthand for objectivity right yeah something it had something to do with objectivity about about knowledge or something like that um mm-hmm. but I, I wanted to ask so this is something i've always mm-hmm. wondered and i asked i asked a philosopher this on twitter a few years ago and he told me go read a book um and <laughs> So I've just never been confident that I really know. So okay. what's a good conceptual analysis of power? So you said you said critical theory is philosophy about power. 
I've never really felt that I know what power means. I know. So I, I understand that mm-hmm. somebody, I, I understand ways in which people can have power over other people. Right. I understand mm-hmm. if, if I can't eat unless I do what you want, then you kind mm-hmm. of have, then you have power over me by being able to keep food away from me. Um, but it also seems that like, if we, if we just say anybody who has anything that somebody else wants has power over them, then every, basically everybody has power over everybody else in that situation, right? Like, you know, the girl next door then has like a great amount of power over me, which might not really be the kind of power um, that we're interested in, you know? Um, so I, I I'm mean, wondering. So I, I'm, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's very funny as you describe that. I'm just thinking, well, it sounds like you're just doing a Foucault there. And like, I'm mm. sympathetic to Foucault's, I mean, like as far as, you know, what little I've read, I'm not an expert in Foucault and I don't think that anybody knows what he's saying really, but like as best I can interpret his points about power, they are roughly something along the lines of, we need to get away from this idea of seeing power as a monolith that is mm-hmm. like a scepter that is being wielded by one one group over another group and recognize that, power exists in different ways in a bunch of different Mm -hmm. fields and like it can be very complicated and people can have power over each other in different formats and it can Mm -hmm. flip in various formats and that so like there is there is no one power there's powers right and i think that's Mm -hmm. i'm sympathetic to that distinction though i realize it falls back into your your complaint of you have just complicated things a lot right like i I, I can't give an essential account I don't mind it in this case, but it doesn't seem like the result that the woke side would want, right? You know, imagine, you know, it's not like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like anybody would say, um, if I want to be friends with somebody who doesn't want to be friends with me, it's never going to be part of a woke analysis to say, oh, well, this person it's like punching down for that person to be mean to Oliver, right? Because they have power over him through this like friendship relation, right? Mm-hmm. To me, it seems like the notion of power has to be very, you know, kind of very, it's only about like a, a very specific things to me in the, in the woke mindset, right? Maybe, maybe you disagree. Like, so maybe it's actually, maybe you're taking kind of a more principled view of power in, in that it could, it could manifest in all these different forms. Um, well, I think this gets but I don't think I would ever, I can't imagine ever seeing a woke person saying, Oh, um, you know, this is, this is a robust power relation here. Somebody is, you know, socially interested in somebody else and the other person isn't interested in them. And so, you know, it's, it's power just like a boss would have power. Um, I'm, I'm not unsympathetic to that use to be honest. Mm-hmm. And so here's what I'll say this. I think this gets into the trouble of, you know, we jokingly use words like woke and not woke. Um, right. And it, it, it right. can have some, you know, it can have some clustering value, but uh, only up to a point at which we have to then say, you know, these are not monolithic groups and right. like within uh-huh. the woke. I do believe there would be people who would reasonably say there could very much, very well be a power dynamic in the war, in the situation that you were describing and it could be exploited and it could be mm-hmm. intersectional with other kinds of power dynamics like gender, for example. Right. Right. Like, um, so I'm, I, I am actually sympathetic to, and I think you are, you are correct that the way that sometimes these things are presented online um, tends to overemphasize certain fields and certain power dynamics mm-hmm. and underemphasize other fields and other power dynamics. And I think that is 
that is a problem, and that's why I am ultimately going to remain on team complications. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Be, no, yeah, yeah. Frustrating. Right. It's okay. For, yeah. It's okay to say things are complicated. I didn't mean to say that it's not okay to say no, things I know. are complicated. Well, I mean, it's but, um, one of the two... Let me just say it's one of the two things that I think I wanted to talk to you about, actually. The complicating one is one, and the other was the catastrophizing. And I think these mm -hmm. actually go together in the problem that we are facing in the in the sort of spiral of our culture war, which is I think there are individuals out there, and I will argue and we can debate this, I think they are asymmetrically um, uh, uh -huh. positioned, right? I think there is a disproportionate number of individuals on one side than the other who engage in a catastrophizing narrative for a variety of purposes. And a part of that catastrophizing narrative involves reinforcing a very simplistic narrative of the people that they are debating with. I, I, I will acknowledge that a tactic like that is being used on both sides, but mm -hmm. I do think there is a, there is not a, a same quantity of it. So I'm curious what, what your feelings are about that. Uh, idea. So, so I just, I, it's not like I've done a survey, you know, like, I don't know. Sure, I, I yeah. haven't run the numbers or anything like that. But let me just like, don't you, th you know, so like, for example, when Nick Christakis mm -hmm. at Yale, right, when there was the, the letter about the Halloween costumes in 2015, you know, one of the things that got me first interested in this stuff, um, Nick Christakis was surrounded by Yale students and they yelled at him. They said, we're dying out here, Right. We're dying mm -hmm. out here, presumably because some people were wearing Halloween costumes that they didn't like, right? Um, mm -hmm. In the theory of the theory of Afro pessimism, um, there there's something called social death. So, mm -hmm. so the idea is that black people not only are black people not even perceived as human by anybody, even other black people, that they can't even be, they can't even be. The whole idea yeah, right. of the human this is, is constituted power, actually, by right. Since we're talking about power, that's that's necro power for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the idea of the human is 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 formed on excluding blackness in some way or excluding black people. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you have um, well, I don't want to get into all. You know, some of the examples are going to get into me get in get me into hot water. Um, but I think numerically, like the idea. I think some trans people have, have the idea that there's um, just like groups, groups of people, you know, walking around looking for trans people to kill, you know, and if like if they don't go if, if they go outdoors, like their lives are kind of immediately in danger and things like that. Um, when the numbers are kind of, you know, like murder rates are kind of similar for, for trans people and cis people. Um, so I don't know if that measures up, you know, to like. It's certainly, you know, it's not quite like QAnon. Um, QAnon is mm -hmm. kind of like a unique phenomenon that I don't really understand very well. Um, but I also think that there's a level at which um, um, some of these narratives are kind of, have a kind of institutional purchase that, mm -hmm. um, at least let me just say in the, remember, I only think about politics a little bit. Mostly I think about culture, right? I think about science and math and philosophy and the arts, you know, literature, music, things like that. Um, and so these are, these are areas in which, you know, the mm -hmm. woke side is, you know, like to me, it seems clear that the woke side is winning in a way that not necessarily the case in like electoral politics. Right. 
Um, mm-hmm. In electoral politics, Republicans tend to do okay, right? And conservatives tend to do okay. Um, but I think, at least in this in this small set of you know universities and 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 magazines and things like that, in these sorts of areas, I think if there's an asymmetry in the amount of purchase that the catastrophizing narratives are going to have, it's going to be, to my mind, in the other direction. Um, and of course, but that might not be responsive to your question, right? You might have meant kind of globally or within the country as a whole. Um, but I think at least in the institutions that I care about, mm-hmm. uh, that I care most about, let's say, I care about all institutions. Um, they're all great. But in the institutions that I care most about, uh, mm-hmm. I do think that there's um, that the catastrophizing is on the other side, or at least is on both sides, let's say. I know that both sides, your audience member is probably very allergic to the phrase both sides, but I'll just say it. I'll be the both sides. Okay. Well, so let me, let me try to respond here. Um, uh-huh. I think, so first of all, I, there was there was one claim in there that I'm not confident is, is empirically true about the uh, relative murder rates. Last, I mean, at last I looked, there were disproportionate murder rates, especially for trans women. Um, and there are sort of a variety of factors that could be mm-hmm. sort of going in, into play there. Now, I mean, what can I, what can I agree with you on here? I think first of all, I can agree with you that there is uh, a, there is a way in which some events are catas- are, are swept up in a narrative of, white supremacy and things like that and are treated as more significant mm-hmm. as because of a desire to sort of provide more evidence for that particular narrative. I do think that is, I don't think that's as much a problem in the trans community where I think they actually are really facing a lot of the problems that they say that they are uh, facing. But I do think that you do see sort of in the broader cultural world those kinds of catastrophe uh, like i do think that is the closest thing that you get to the the stuff like QAnon. now i also think it's still worlds apart from what is going on on the right and it's it's a little in- i mean i know what you mean when you say i'm interested in the arts and all these other things and not as mm-hmm. much politics i also think you know the first thought i have is all of those things you just described are political they've always been political they'll always be political but i know what you mean that like you're not paying as much attention to mm-hmm. you know who's getting elected or something like that right i do think it's very hard to give an account of what's going on on the right in America at this moment um, without understanding, it seems to me, the past at least 60 to 100 years of catastrophizing around race that happened Mm -hmm. from Jim Crow up through civil rights, et cetera. And it's, I think, continue, like, is what is still driving a lot of what's going on, not just with QAnon, but with folks like Lindsay. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think because they have been at that process of fear mongering and turning the volume up and up and up, for that length of time, that's why they are rioting and, and storming the Capitol in a way that I don't think you're you're anywhere close to seeing anybody on the left actually doing, for example. Well, I'll but tell you I, what my, yeah. without, I'm not a political person, as I say. My conservative mm-hmm. friends will say, well, there were riots last summer. That'll be the response, right? They'll say, 
There were right. there were riots where where city blocks were burned down, um, and I. Uh, I think there's you know, a difference there were, in motivation yeah. there that's important. So the issue here, I think, is not just yeah. I don't. Violence, I don't disagree. Right? I don't disagree that, you know, if you ask me for my moral evaluation of the people who were involved in the different riots, I'm going to generally prefer the people who were in the BLM, you know, or or protests. I'll prefer the people who were in the BLM protests. But one thing that I believe mm-hmm. is that. Um, that motivations kind of only get you um, so far. And one thing that I see in the culture war, I just want to, I just want to mention that that's very funny to, I mean, I'm not like not making laughing at you, but it's funny because um, Barry Weiss just put out the article about how the woke are the ones that cancel intent that like wokeism Uh is about, you know, canceling intent and only judging the actions. It's just funny to me when like, you know, you see. Yeah. Well, I don't mean to disagree. I don't mean, I don't mean to say that intent doesn't matter for our moral evaluations of people. Sure. Um, But I think it, it matters for our evaluations of, you know, what's doing damage and what's really going on. Right. Mm -hmm. So I tend, and it's something that I see in the culture war as a whole. And I think the catastrophizing affects it. So maybe this will Mm -hmm. go back to our, and maybe who who knows what our moral evaluation should be. Maybe we should, maybe I should have an internalist. Everybody's trying their best view of that as well. And I'm not Um, primarily concerned with with morally evaluating here. I'm mostly mm -hmm. interested in the epistemological differences between the sides on this actually, but yeah, go ahead. Right. Um, well, yeah, I was just going to say it's something I see in the culture war that people who seem to be motivated by the right things um, on the worker side still engage in these behaviors that I I think of as just kind of cruel. These kind of mobbing behaviors, the kind of let's make sure this person loses their job. Let's make sure that this person is disavowed by their friends sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it seems to me that a lot of these people have kind of been convinced that that's going to be effective uh, at, at making the world a better place. Um, or they, and, uh, or they I just don't they've think... been convinced that nothing else is working, I think might be another way to, to um, generate, like, yeah, right. Yeah, that's, that's possible. But I mean, a lot of these people are like, you know, 23, 24, you know, maybe they should wait a few years to see what works and what doesn't. Right. You know, Sh- sure. The idea that nothing is working in terms of social progress on the left, right? Like mm-hmm. in 2008, you know, when Barack Obama ran for president, he was against gay marriage. So was Hillary Clinton. So was Joe Biden in 2008. They were all against gay marriage, right? A few years later, they're all in favor of gay marriage. Then suddenly, you know, uh, the Supreme Court, you know, a relatively, you know, conservative institution among the branches, Uh, rules in favor of gay marriage, right? Like these things, these things, there's, I think there's a lot of amnesia um, politically uh, in the United States, maybe, maybe everywhere about just Mm -hmm. what were the, you know, what were the conditions in recent memory? um, And what was the kind of status quo in recent memory? I think that, um, you know, to feel from kind of a, a perspective of, identity politics to to feel hopeless about social progress in the united states um and i don't use that as a pejorative right um but to feel hopeless about progress in the united states from a progressive identity perspective um to me i uh, i can't quite understand it 
So I'm actually, I, I sit on the the edge of this problem right now. I'm, I'm actually working on a paper on Afrofuturism and Afro-pessimism mm -hmm. and the tension between this idea that change is possible and we should aspire for great change and also, you know, change is not possible and like other than, than violent overthrow, like nothing is mm -hmm. going to actually make a difference. So I don't think there is a clear answer on that issue. And I, I, I live in what I experience as a paradox of tolerance where, or sorry, not paradox of tolerance, a paradox of change where I feel like I can point to concrete examples of things getting better, but I can mm -hmm. also point to concrete examples of things not like never getting better on a different level. And I, it, mm -hmm. I worry, I think there is some reasonable concern that like the things that get better are, are not, enough or something but like even like you know we got rid of it's so it's so hard to talk about any of this because it's like well we got rid of one kind of slavery but we have another kind of slavery mm -hmm. uh, and so like i'm sympathetic both to the idea that we have made progress and to the criticism of that progress as as not do you, being do you think we have another kind of so what do you think is the other kind of slavery i'm not sure that i would well, you know well, private prisons for example i think are effectively slavery. we certainly operations. do have a lot of people in prison that's very true we have a lot and of people work in for prison. slave wages and yeah that's, they that's true not become firefighters true. when they get out of prison and they are very disproportionately people of color um and there's a long history of the way that the individuals who were freed under slavery ended up in these systems of incarceration, mm -hmm. consistently creating these cycles that are problems. So like, I think there is a case to be made there that, you know, what we have done is put a much nicer face on what is still a very, very racistly unjust system. Um, so that's why I'm sympathetic to the people who push back on the, um, the progress kind of, side of things here there was oh, something else that you were mentioning that I thought was also really interesting i've lost it mm -hmm. um but like so so part of my my reason for asking about these kinds of issues is um you know i'm interested i'm very interested in the world of conspiracy theories right and like i think there is an important difference between the left and the right when it comes to conspiracy theories and i think the conspiracy theories are driving a lot of escalation because they were originally mm -hmm. a tool that i feel like has now gotten out of the control of its master on the right um now i'm curious what you think about i don't think there are zero conspiracy theories on the left but I'm, mm -hmm. i would not say that there are any conspiracy theories that i think rise to the level of QAnon and the great mm -hmm. replacement and these kinds of white identity white anxiety conspiracy theories that i think are are absolutely running the ship on the right do you would you disagree i mean yeah i mean so first of all it's hard to know so it's definitely true that QAnon, in terms of the conspiracy, so first of all, it's hard to characterize just what counts as a conspiracy theory, right? Like, sure. what sort of conspiracy do we have in mind? Sometimes people use the, the phrase conspiracy theory just to mean a kind of like crazy and kind of culty theory. If it means it's got kind of crazy culty theory, then I think the left is full of them. I'll just be honest about that. Um, of course, mm -hmm. so is the right. It's true that QAnon and the Great Replacement are very much like, you know, people sat in a smoke-filled room and like decided to molest children and kill people, right? Like that's basically the mm -hmm. idea, right? Like that's basically the idea of these theories. Generally, left wing, and I say when I say left wing, I don't necessarily mean like you know Marx. I, you know, I mean like including mm -hmm. identity politics, including progressive cultural progressivism, things like that. Conspiracy mm -hmm. theorists on uh, conspiracy theories or or the weird theories on that side 
tend to be a bit more sophisticated, right? So in the way that we were talking about before, they have a different understanding of power. They see power, what you know, whatever it means, as being kind of more widely disseminated, right? There are mm-hmm. the everybody can kind of enact power on everybody else, and it doesn't need to come from just like a few. Um, you know, usually it's Jewish people. Usually we're the ones who are accused of having a conspiracy. Almost right? always. It's um, so, but it's not a few Jews like us in a smoke filled room deciding, deciding to run the world. Right. It can right. be this kind Lots of thing of where Jews spread everybody's out doing, yeah, everybody's <laughs> kind of doing it just like a little bit. Right. And right. a lot of left wing thought has this, it's almost like a conspiracy theory that then was filtered through this very, very clever idea of power being disseminated, right? So if you think about the theory of the patriarchy, right? If you hear the word patriarchy, you might think, oh, it's a bunch of men in a smoke-filled room. But -hmm. then you put it through the cleverness filter, right? When it goes through the cleverness filter, it's kind of like, oh, it's actually sort of like the smoke-filled room is kind of like in everybody's heads at the same time. And nobody's nobody's like a truly evil patriarch we're just like in very little ways being patriarchs to each other all the time, right? Um, well, that would be the implicit bias, not the fully systemic version, right? Yeah, so the fully implicit bias, be, yeah. The patriarchy is not even in your heads. It's outside of all of our heads. Right, that's right? true. It's a fully non-psychological are, version. Right. Yeah, a fully non-psychological version wouldn't even make reference, right? Um, that's certainly true. That's that's a really right. good point. So, um, so yeah, so I is, do this think- This is great because this is what I'm fascinated by. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I mean, I think this is really fascinating because one objection that I often see from anti-woke folks is some version of black Marxism or racial capitalism is itself a kind of conspiracy Mm -hmm. theory. Um, And I think there's actually very open debate within the racial capitalism world about whether or not how to what extent it is a conspiracy theory so i wanted to read if you don't mind this is actually Mm -hmm. from um, oh yeah before you do that i just want to say one thing though yeah i don't want to make the mistake of Mm -hmm. sometimes there are conspiracies right so it's not necessarily it might be a reason to be hesitant about it but it's not a not to call to call racial capitalism a conspiracy theory does not immediately mean that people need to abandon it, right? It's just something about what the theory posits, right? So I just want to make sure to be explicit about that because just like like with everything else, right? I'm a kind of, I think people, conspiracy theorists are kind of for the, you know, not necessarily the people who create the theories, but the people who believe the theories often are kind of like doing their best, right? And often, you know, sometimes there are real world conspiracies. So I just want to make sure to get that on the table. Yeah, and I do think it's very it's important to distinguish between what I think of as capital C, capital T conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. and then like theories about conspiracies where right. you know like Bridgegate or something, which is you know absolutely genuinely happened, and you can prove it. And there are interesting, you know, we don't have time for, it, but there are interesting like different ways that you can make some rough distinctions between those two categories, and especially I think between I do think there is something to the idea that there is a kind of conspiratorial mindset that mm-hmm. someone gets into. And once they're in that space, it becomes very easy for them to become attuned to a lot of conspiracy theories. Um, And I think that's a reason to be concerned about mild conspiracy theories, because I think they can lead, they can make it easier to then accept less mild conspiracy theories. Yeah, there's definitely once somebody accepts one, you know, 
the other one is kind of like, well, it's the smoke filled room next door. Right. So I think it's very right. easy to, once you kind of accept that the, the form of the conspiracy theory is plausible. It's easy to, to kind mm-hmm. of piggyback more onto it. I definitely agree with that, but read what you're going to read. I'm sorry. For yeah. I just wrote an article about that. Yeah, no problem. I, w- I will plug my article about uh, Beware the They, which is a Skeptic Mag article about how mm-hmm. that that formal structure can take over in that way. But, okay, so this is from Bhattacharya. This is in response to racial capitalism. It's called Ten Theses on Racial mm-hmm. Capitalism. I'm only going to read the first one because I think it's so sort of perfect for this conversation. Uh, it says, racial capitalism is a way of understanding the role of racism in key enabling Sorry, in enabling key moments of capitalist development, it is not a way of understanding capitalism as a racist conspiracy or racism as a capitalist conspiracy. To -hmm. explain this point a little more, the analysis of the productivity of racialization in the service of capitalism should not, must not be read as an allegation of intentionality. Mm -hmm. There are racists in the world uh, and some of them have profited through exploitation, but racial capitalism does not emerge as a result of a plan. No one map out. Uh, no one maps out the program and then enacts it. We seek to understand what we seek to understand is the place of radical, uh, sorry, racialization, in particular instances of capitalist formation. Most of all, when those instances are now, so in the present. But I think that 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 point of intentionality is really interesting there, and it relates mm-hmm. back to our discussion of intent earlier but i would i'm a little mixed about this in response i think that there is intentionality in the history of like it isn't like just mm-hmm. one smoke-filled room but there are some smoke-filled rooms right there yeah are... i i i also sort of feel that well i, I guess i don't quite understand i mean you mm-hmm. know, as an analytic philosopher, I get very confused by big words, right? Like we kind of, we, we have, <laughs> we love playing talk, right? So yeah. I didn't quite understand everything that was being asserted in that passage. Um, I guess I'm wondering, what do you think is, what do you think is left of the theory without intentionality? Well, so um, what I would say, yeah. So, I mean, the, the steel bot version of that to me is the point that they're making is no one ever had to say, Hey, let's do a really good capitalism by using racism or something like Mm -hmm. that, right? There was never a conscious effort to say we're going to use racial differences in this particular kind of way. It was more like here was a tool that was at hand and there was a need and it got used in this kind of way. Now, I don't believe that though. I think, I mean, like that, that would be the sort of like very much, the farthest away from being anything like a conspiracy theory in my mind, because it's literally like, here's how we explain something that looks like a conspiracy happened, but there right. was never any actually conspiracy theory happening. So on that level, right. I would say it's it's an attempt to do quite the opposite of conspiracy theorizing. But I think it goes a little too far because I do think there are points where you can look at individuals intentionally saying, we're going to do a racism for the sake of a capitalism in this kind of way. So I'm yeah, not and sure I would think that most that. of the, most of the evidence for racial capitalism would be of the, like it's, I, I don't know exactly what, what the other kind of, I don't know the racial capitalism literature very well. I've read a few mm-hmm. articles by my Twitter friend, right? Like basically by Liam and Femi, my Twitter friend. Sure. Of course. Um, I, uh, to me, it's almost less plausible in the non-intentional form, right? The idea of seeing, so we have to posit, like the theory posits, race didn't exist yet, and it kind of wasn't natural to perceive it. It's very contingent, 
right? All these things are all about historical contingency, right? Right. That's, you know, if, we, if you go into one of these theory seminars, they always say historical contingency, historical contingency. Um, mm-hmm. So, okay, it's a historical contingency that anybody ever thought that they perceived something like a race, right? Um, but somehow, despite that, it sort of unconsciously occurs to people that it could serve their goals in a very strategic way to make up this thing called race. But they think that they think that it's real or something like that. To me, the unconscious version requires a whole lot of sort of psychological machinery that I don't mm-hmm. like. Um, and I'll just say, because we talked about unconscious bias before, in general, there's maybe this goes with my internalism, maybe it doesn't. But in general, there's been a move in social psychology, but also to an extent in philosophy um, mm-hmm. over the past decade or two to just make make so much of the mind you know it's a kind of neo-freudianism right makes so much of what goes on in the mind unconscious it's it's these this motivated reasoning or cognitive biases or implicit biases you know mm-hmm. every, everybody does it and a lot of the things a lot of the things that came under attack in the replication crisis um i reviewed Stuart richie's book about this science fictions which is very good a lot mm-hmm. of the things that came under attack in the replication crisis were of this sort they were things like oh when when the streets in your city are dirtier you get more racist um turns out that that doesn't happen you know that doesn't happen um Mm -hmm. so you know a lot of these unconscious mechanisms i just you know it's not that i doubt that there are unconscious mechanisms it's just that Mm -hmm. you know a lot of them that are posited are very elaborate and are given a very very significant causal role um, without, to my mind, being really like explained. And you do see in the literature, I don't know, these might be people you don't like, but like Jesse Single is is posting about this all the time. In the literature on the implicit association test, it seems mm-hmm. like the results that are starting to come out now are people do have these implicit biases, but they only really affect action. And like very, very, they might affect police shootings because those are very, you have to make like a snap second decision. But if you're Mm -hmm. making any, if you have anything more than like a snap second, then you kind of have other processes that kick in, right? Like you have more reflective processes that kick in. Um, And so it's really explicit bias, which of course, there's still like, there's still quite a bit of, right? You know, we shouldn't apologize for people's explicit biases by saying that they only have these unconscious forms. Um, that yeah. really explain a lot of actually prejudiced situations in the world. So I, th- that's just something about, about that literature, but also about the, the, the de-intentionalized narrative of racial capitalism, where they, they kind of didn't know they were doing it, and all these things happened unconsciously. It just seems like a very elaborate thing to be happening entirely unconsciously, just to make. Well, so I think there's an alternative explanation here that isn't quite so mysterious, uh, I guess I will say. which So I w- what I would put forward is... And this is, I've been reading um, uh, Walensky's book, Learning to Divide the World, which I'm really loving. And it's about Mm. sort of the scientific revolution of the colonial period and the way that science was part of the colonial project and the Mm. way that it reinforced the colonial project. And I think he makes a really interesting case about, so it could be the case, for example, that it's not unconscious racism that is driving the racialization of capitalism, that the Mm. racialization of capitalism is a side effect of 
a goal, a project of controlling the world in a you, you, like colonialism bad, but like in a, you know, basic human nature kind of way, basic animal kind of mm -hmm. way of like controlling your environment. Right. And they've, mm -hmm. they're developing all these new categorizational tools during the like late 18, late 1700s, early 1800s mm -hmm. period. And at the same time, there's this exploration going on into these worlds where they are, you know, into the parts of the world where they are finding individuals who are very, very different from them culturally and physically. And in the process of the kind of cat, the great categorizing of the world that was being done by these naturalists and scientists going out into the world, part of that that seemed very intuitive to them was that just like there are these different species, there must be mm -hmm. these different races of man. And we're going to, you know, and that, that ties in very well to these differences in their wealth and all these things. And maybe there's a natural. And so that, mm -hmm. you know, like I can see how someone could take all of those steps without being overtly racist right. in their mind. Yeah. I was just going to say, does that seem like a non-intuitive because the way you described it, you convinced me. It does seem like a kind of intuitive thought for them to have. Well, I think it is an intuitive thought for them to have. And it's why I think all, you know, like almost all of the great thinkers of that time, quote unquote, mm -hmm. right, had these very racist thoughts is because with their limited information and understanding <clears throat> at that time, it was naturally intuitive right. for them to adopt that view. Yeah. And then it gets reinforced by all these systems of knowledge production. So this is grist for my internalist mill. It's making me really happy on the philosophical <laughs> side. Okay, um, good. I, yeah, so um, I, I guess that that makes sense to a degree. I'm always a little bit skeptical. Another, you know, I'm a skeptic. What can I say? I'm a little bit skeptical as well of the, there's all these claims people make about the role of categorization. So for example, in the social constructionist literature, you have people like mm -hmm. Ian Hacking and Sally Hassanger who think that just like when you come up with a categorization, people sort of just like start acting to they sort of like latch onto it and start like, you know, mm -hmm. acting in in a way that fits the categorization sort of to make it true. Um, that, you know, that just seems like weird to me. It would be really weird if that happened like really consistently. Really, um, it seems very natural to me. Well, it's so, <laughs> I mean, okay, natural, here's what seems natural. To, here's what <laughs> seems natural to me. What seems natural to me is that a categorization can have a causal role, just like anything, right? Mm -hmm. And plausibly, there are some categorizations which can have effects that look a little bit like meeting the categorizations in some ways, but it'd be highly, you know, it's just an odd, like it's a way of saying you don't get credit for being right, right? So to me, it's it's a very strange move. The sort of people match the categorization that they're given kind of move. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, there are look there are there are ways in which like you know if you decide that a certain population is highly criminal and you decide to kind of immiserate them for that reason and then they're impoverished and they kind of have to steal from you or mm -hmm. something to get by that you know that's the kind of feedback loop, right? And I don't deny that things like that can happen sometimes. Um, but it just seemed to, to make it kind of like, you have to have like a very specific situation for a categorization to get into that sort of loop, right? It, you know, you can imagine a lot of categorizations that just don't effectuate in that kind of loop at all. Um, yes. At the same time, I would say, I think 
or eventuate, sorry. I, I think that human beings naturally group and categorize. And uh -huh. so we are naturally, we naturally are, are tempted by taxonomies in this kind of way, right? We, uh -huh. we find them appealing. And then I think what you do really see is a cultural shift towards the increased valuing of the ability to categorize as being sort of a key mm -hmm. ability within elite academic knowledge to be able to understand all of these categories and that's such certainly true control things yeah and we see you know you see it in philosophy the making of distinctions right is is mm -hmm. one of the key one of the key uh philosophical it's actually something that i don't necessarily like because i think Sometimes you have, eventually you have too many distinctions, right? Sometimes you should be a splitter, but sometimes you should be a lumper. To me, that's like a very simple, right? It's not complicated. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, eventually you have too many distinctions. So yeah, I agree with you. Um, and again, you know, like, just like politics, history is, you know, I, I don't know that much about the history and I haven't, I haven't read a lot of, um, a, a lot of these books. Um, and you know, like I think it, it's, it, it's it, so it's hard just, to know all these things. Like I mean, yeah. I'm I'm trying to read all this stuff all the time, and I feel like I'm always being like, like this. This is one of the things that I find the saddest about the culture war is I think there's lots of really interesting stuff in these critical race black Marxism materials mm -hmm. that like if we could turn down the volume some on the way that these things are being discussed and I will I will uh, you know accept your bullsiderism on this one that like there mm -hmm. are people on the woke side who are also trying to use these arguments in a way that I don't think is is healthy or productive um, that like more people will be able to get a lot of value out of learning mm -hmm. about this side of history and knowledge production and these sorts of things. Um, but I realize, well, let me ask, go. Yeah, go ahead. Let me ask you this question. Are there any, cause it seems like you read a lot more than I, you know, I read, I, I read, I read philosophy. Slowly, so it's very unlikely. <laughs> well, I read philosophy and then I read fiction. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't really read very much history or very much politics. Are there any conservative? So I haven't read very many conservative writers either. And people, people in my circles, they often quote like Chesterton and Oakeshott. Um, and sometimes, you know, McIntyre is kind of like, a you know, one of these conservative Marxist people. Um, mm -hmm. uh, are there any conservative writers you like? Any conservative historians with a kind of alternate perspective on I these wanna, sorts of I, issues? Can I say Thomas Hobbes? Does that count? Yeah, I like Hobbes. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I'm very sympathetic uh, to Hobbesianism and I wish the conservatives would pay more attention to Hobbes. Yeah, um, no, no. I, like, uh, yeah. Hobbes is Hobbes was an interesting guy and a smart guy. Um, I haven't read that much of him. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not any kind of historian. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think Hobbes is. Uh, well, I was going to say he's underrated, but that's almost certainly false. Um, but you know, he's not as he's overrated. Underutilized, as, I would say. I he, think yeah, he's underused. He's not as overrated as some other historical philosophers. Let's say. Yeah, but um, I mean, I, I say that jokingly because I I really do struggle to point to a modern conservative uh, intellectual who I really mm -hmm. would strongly advocate that somebody pick up their book and read. And I, I know that's a bad thing. And I, I don't think it's necessarily because of my, mm -hmm. you know, like I listened to like Rich Lowry on podcasts. I listened to mm -hmm. Ross Douthat on podcasts. I would, I couldn't possibly. Okay. You listen to more conservatives than, than I do then. Yeah. <laughs> That's but already like, more, I, yeah. But like, I don't have a lot of respect for either of them, to be honest. Uh -huh. oh, like, okay. I don't have well, a lot of respect for like Scruton or, um, you know, uh, Soul is maybe someone I could agree with on a few things, but I also think that he's like a bomb thrower, which is really frustrating. Yeah, Soul was, yeah, and so he was also a kind of libertarian. Um, yeah, Ross is, you know, 
a few times over the summer, I, I wrote an article and Ross, it was kind of just like a running joke that I had on Twitter. Ross would like mm-hmm. write the same, like, a, you know, a sort of pared down version of my article a week later. I don't think he actually had read my article, but it was just funny that it happened multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do, I do kind of like Ross, not necessarily, I don't know. The New York Times is like, <sighs> Well, I don't, I don't want to get into it. I don't have, you know, I think it's good that Ross is at the New York Times. If Ross was somewhere else, I might not read him, but I think it's good that there's somebody like Ross at the New York Times. Um, I'm saying Ross, even though I don't know him. I should just say doubt that. Yeah, um, yeah I think that uh, what I would say is I think that there's definitely, for some reason, and I don't want to overstate this. I don't think that conservatism is the new punk rock as some people, as, as people used to tweet sometimes, but there are, um, I think kind of like people in their twenties, there are some interesting conservative writers. So if you wait a few years, I think some, some interesting things will start to be written. But my view is in terms of people writing now, I just don't, I think there's so much that's written and so little of it is good. Um, and that goes especially, especially for books. You know, when I review books, I, re- I review a lot of books and half the time they're based on like one article that wasn't very good to begin with. And somebody said, oh, you should turn this into a book. And it's just like that article, but like five times. Right. You know, and it's long, like, right? why? Did, yeah. It's like, what's the point? So I've seen this on both sides. Um, one book, again, you know, no offense to these people. I'm sure it was, you know, an economically rational thing to write these books. Um but like Mark Lilla uh, had this book, had this article in the New York Times um, after the Trump election that was like, oh, this happened because of identity politics. And then somebody was like, oh, you should write a book about this. And then it was like a whole book of like, oh, this happened because, you know, and so it's like, you could have just stick with the article. Um, and then uh, on the other side, there was uh, Yuri Baer, who's a professor of German at NYU or something like this had a book mm-hmm. on on free speech in the academy that was, again, it, he wrote some article and somebody said, turn this into a book. And it was just like, it literally repeats sentences, you know, a few pages later. Um, mm-hmm. So I think in terms of finding good, I think it's very hard to find the good stuff now because there's so much being written and so much being published. And um, and I really think that the, incentive, the incentives are wrong for... Um, I mean, just from my own writing, I, I yeah. don't want to, from my own writing, you know, I write something and people say, Oliver, it sounds like you're trying to write a philosophy paper, you know, like stop. People mm-hmm. are always telling me, stop pulling your punches and write this like, you know, like a five-year-old could read it. Right. So, you know, for clicks mm-hmm. and for people buying things, you want to, you want, you want to have some controversy and it's, it's good to write it in a way that everybody will understand. And it's good to write it in a way that will kind of like misrepresent and offend people. Um, so yeah, I, I would just say that about, I think in general, uh, the incentives for writing, um, kind of good stuff at the moment aren't great. I can't Mm -hmm. point to, um, well, yeah, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, this was the question. I mean, this was the last question we got time for, for me, given (laughs) that my listenership probably slants woke, Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe your answer is I can't help you with this, but like, who would you recommend for woke folks who want to like expand their epistemic community beyond that world? Some good question. Um, 
you know, me, I, I, some other people who write good stuff. There's Aaron Sabarium. He's, he's an up and coming writer. There's Charles Fane Lemon. They're both at the free beacon. There's Ben Sixsmith. He writes at the spectator a lot. Um, I was going to say my friend Dimitri, but I, I don't think he, I don't think he's publishing much. Um, if you want, you know, if you want to go really far out there, uh, you can follow some of the Catholics. You can follow Adrian Vermeule. He's a he's a great Twitter follow. He's absolutely uh, inimitable. Um, and I also think you know some of the kind of standard. I think some of the some of the stuff that people like us were saying five years ago, you know, even before the election, I don't know if it's completely been answered, right? So I don't think I don't think Jonathan Haidt has has completely been answered. Um, I think people don't always take Pinker seriously enough, even though Pinker has his problems. Um, I don't know. This is so hard. This is really embarrassing because I really don't read the people that I agree with very often. Um, you know, I think yeah, that... I mean, is there anyone in the IDW who you feel like they should follow besides... Or, I mean, Pinker oh, God, I'd better, I'd better have some... I'm going to get kicked out if I, I don't have a good answer about this. Um, <laughs> I'll be honest. I like Coleman. Um I like Coleman Hughes. Uh, there's stuff that we disagree about, but uh, he's a very clear writer and you'll know what you disagree with um, when you read him. He's trained in philosophy. So, you know, most, I just usually yeah. find that a lot of the people I like are trained in philosophy. Um, His co-host is going to be a guest on the show here in a little while, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Um, I, and I I like I like the blogging heads guys. I like Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter. I've always I've always listened to them a lot. I think they're very emotional. They get stuff wrong sometimes. They can be very vindictive towards uh, towards other black intellectuals sometimes. Um, but in general, I think their analyses are are, are really good. Um, and yeah. um, all right, I have I have you know, not been at super. Uh, I, I, I wanted to yeah, be more yeah. impressed with, with with McWhorter than I have been. You know, like I yeah, wanted to I, have him be the more reasonable individual to like pay attention to yeah i'll say that um well i don't know i i keep getting myself you know i feel like i've probably gotten myself in hot water a few times with some things i've said but um there's also a kind of um middle of the like kathy young is somebody who i think just is pretty diligent in getting the facts on things she reports about um i think that if you know, if you want a kind of center lefty anti identity politics podcast, there's Blocked and Reported with Jesse Single um, and uh, and uh, Katie Herzog. Um, I'm friends with both of them. I think they're great. I'm sure some of your listeners hate them, uh, but I think they're great. Um, and uh, there's also the anti woke leftists. Um, so my personal mm-hmm. view. Um, is people should people should read uh, Christopher Lash. People should read Adolf Reed. Um, if you want outlets, there's um, uh, the Bellows uh, and another one. There's actually some anti woke stuff published at Jacobin a lot of the time. Um, I'm sure you've noticed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, some mm-hmm. every now and then there's anti woke stuff at Current Affairs. Freddie DeBoer. Um, we, you know, people in my circles love Freddie DeBoer. I'm sure you have mixed feelings. Um, Angela Nagel sometimes, although her book was also uh, was a bit of a rush job. Um, 
uh, I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, Red Scare is fun, but not. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the, this sort of crowd, right? Um, so I think the anti woke. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'll say is the anti woke people, and this goes with what I was saying before. The anti woke people, I really think they run the political gamut, as I think the woke people do, um, and that's why my view is, you know, to to large extent, I think the culture war is separable um, from the political war. Um, hmm. Interesting. And, uh, or, you know, from politics, there's no political war. Luckily a political mm-hmm. war would be much worse than a culture war. Right. right. Um, but maybe, you know, some people think we're going to have one. Right? Um, right. I think that would be really bad. Um, but yeah, I think that you can find anti-woke people. Um, you can find anti-woke people in a lot of places. Um, and it doesn't require, um, you know, the things you asked me, you know, it doesn't require being against welfare or being against gay marriage or anything like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, at, to a certain extent, all that it requires is seeing, you know, if you see these Robin D'Angelo presentations where she's like, we have to try to be not white anymore or something like that. And you just think that's like a crazy thing. Like what the hell does that even mean? Right. Well, mm-hmm. I say to you, welcome to the intellectual dark web. If you know, so Fair that'll enough. be my closing statement. That's a good. Way yeah. And, and rather than keep you here for another hour to argue over each of those names, <laughs> and why, like let it, let it be read into the record that obviously I probably have criticisms of many of the people you named. I deliberately asked you for a question, you know, yeah, asked yeah, you for yeah. names. And I think that's, yeah, you gave me names in fairness and I think that should be respected. Um, and yes, in, in my, in my full defense, I have had issues with you as well as a both sider on certain things, mm-hmm. but I do think this was, a productive conversation and i hope that um folks can resist the urge to cancel us both for the sake of, mm-hmm. of having it um, but most importantly before i let you go i have to subject you to the enlightening round enlightenment comes from within so here's what's going to happen i'm going to give you mm-hmm. a list of things and you are mm-hmm. going to tell me are these things real or not real oh okay gosh and you do not this get to like a game what's show real and not real. It is a, it is a mm-hmm. lightning round in the truest sense, right? You are mm-hmm. not allowed to tell me what real means in this case. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to hedge. There's no middle ground here. Real or not real. That's the game. Are you okay, ready? Okay. I'm already anticipating right. what some of them could be. Yeah. And and how, how badly I'm going to get canceled. Yeah, go ahead. So here we go. Luckily, everybody and nobody gets canceled for this. The stakes could not be lower. Mm-hmm. Um, now, okay. is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. Let's find out what's real. Real or not real? The external world. Yes. Okay. Colors. Yes. Phenomenal consciousness. Yeah. Free will. Okay. Now we're in the, I could get canceled uh, range. Um, People don't debate free will enough in the culture wars, in my opinion. Used to be a bigger thing. I'll, I'll, like. I'll say yes. I'll say okay. yes. Selves or persons? Yes. Okay. Genders? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Races? Yeah. Species? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Morality? 
Yes. Right. I said I haven't said no to anything. I'm too. My ontology is way too promiscuous. <laughs> I have to go. Yeah. Sorry. I'm being. I'm being very. Sorry. It's go okay. ahead. No, it's fine. It's amusing to me. Rights. Um. Yeah. Okay. Knowledge. Yes. God or gods. Uh. Um. I hope so. Uh, um, That's not an answer. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Um, nope. <laughs> probably not. Uh, nope. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm a. Unfortunately, I'm a, an agnostic leaning atheist. Um, but okay, I would love not to real. not be. Yeah. Okay. That's enough not of that. Uh, I've given you way too much leeway already. Society. <laughs> Society. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Money. Yeah. Numbers. Yes. Fictional characters. Yeah. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Yes. Chairs. Yes. Sandwiches. Yeah. Science. Yes. Natural laws. Oh, yeah, yeah. Beauty? Yes. Love? Yeah. Causality? Yes. And finally, time? Yes. Oh, my gosh. What a terrible... I just... I said yes to everything. That's awful. the funniest thing about that is you actually did the exact opposite of what Liam did, which was he said no to everything oh, yeah, except yeah, yeah. God or gods. So you are, yeah, yeah. You are he, apparently he and I, Liam. Yeah, he and I, we get along pretty well. But it's funny because I think people see us as political opposites when we, we rarely argue about politics. But I am just like a, 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 a you know, it, I'm like Han Solo in Star Wars, right? It's true. All of it, right? You know? <laughs> Natural laws, uh-huh. moral realism, right? Uh-huh. You know, internalism. It's all right. It's all true. All the spooky shit in metaphysics. We yeah. just need it to explain to explain how things actually are. So you're um, Max Spooky, but not God. I'm Funny Max enough. Spooky. I'm Max Spooky, and Liam is a kind of fiddly <laughs> conventionalist Carnapian, right? Oh, this um, is good. This is very good. End of the episode. Um, trash yeah. talking. I appreciate this. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I think he he wouldn't mind. Hopefully, he doesn't mind that. You know. We'll find out. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely find out. Um, yeah. You know. Well, I don't know. I, you gave me too much leeway already, so I'll just. I have. I have. This has been a lot of fun. We're way over answer. time. I really, really, yeah, yeah. We'll, Sorry about we'll, that. we'll get you back on. We, we can clearly have yeah, plenty more good. that we need to talk about. But um, yeah. do you want to let folks know where they can find you one more time? Yeah. Um, well, you can find me on Twitter when I'm there. I often deactivate because I find it highly unpleasant. <laughs> and a lot of people on there hate me, which, believe it or not, I don't like. Um, oh, I don't I don't know if they know this, but like when people kind of tell me that they hate me, it doesn't make me happy. Uh, so I kind of leave so when they do that. You're not a James Lindsay uh, type in that kind of way, huh? No, I don't feed. You know, I wish I did. I wish I could kind of feed off of it. Um, mm hmm. I think my website is olivertrolley.weebly.com. So you can see a list of things I've written and kind of something that I wrote about what I was interested in philosophy like two years ago on there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find, you know, you can find my, all of my negative book reviews and 
all of my kind of unwoke articles and stuff on there. Great. I'm sure we'll dig into that for some canceling. Well, I appreciate it. All. Yeah, it's been a lot good. of fun. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our returning patron. May the void be with you too, Obi Kenobody. And to our patron, one is first, but two is a close second for their increased pledge. And as always, thanks to our top tier patrons, thanks to our Archon patrons, Dude, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T, the original heathen, the vegan, Jude Law's Canadian accent in existence makes my pussy throb and fix the vote. And as always, thanks to our very top tier Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes and Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, no matter how things feel right now, remember... You are the void, and the void is you.